0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, here's a here's a question for you just to, to lead into today's episode. Do we live in a user-fits-all world?
0: Sure, right? I mean, have you seen those universal symbols of men and women on bathroom doors? Oh, yeah. do we all just kind of look like that? Like, I constantly have a skirt on with my hands... Outstretched <laughs> and yours are always by your side. The pants on?
1: Yeah, yeah. You go to a you go to a restaurant, certainly in the States, you order your meal, it comes on a giant plate, right? That's the amount of food that feeds the, the, the average person and so you're supposed to eat it all.
0: Right. Yeah. Everybody wants that giant plate of food. Actually, I was uh, at a restaurant not too long ago, and there was a British woman next to me, and she started just talking about how terrible it is <laughs> in the United States, like the giant portions. And I had never really thought about it because I'm so used to that restaurant dining, mm-hmm. and I thought, she's right.
1: Yeah, they bring you out a, a bowl of something, and it's it's it should be in the middle of a table uh, with a family of four or five uh, uh, dining on it. But no, instead, it's your, your personal trough. Of
0: food. Yeah, it's the United States one-size-fits-all meal just mm-hmm. for you. And that's where it gets into this idea of, of um, this kind of like, what is average? This question of, is there really an average? And this bell curve that we have all been introduced to in primary school, elementary school, and onward tends to kind of rule our lives even after we've left school. Right. And we're going to look at, we're going to, Look into this idea today. This this myth of average.
1: Yeah, if you want to imagine uh, the bell curve here, uh, and certainly we're going to have varying degrees of familiarity with this, uh, but uh, it's basically looks like a bell. It's a, it's a it's a it's a line, and then the line is going sort of flat, and then it curves up, and then it curves back down again. And the idea here is that uh, is that on a performance standpoint, as far as the, the statistics of performance, the idea is that you have a very small group that is underperforming, that's at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. And then you have a, a small group that is just really performing at a high level, and they're at the top. And then you have this larger group in the middle. And they—that that is the, the realm of the average.
0: Yes. Um, bell curves are normal probability distributions. And that's what I think is interesting about this probability, because we take this kind of distribution, and we use them in real-world scenarios, which we'll talk about in a second. But what you just, just described is this idea that we have an equivalent number of people above and below average, and that there's a very small number of people who are two standard deviations above and below the average. So if you're thinking about that plotted out on that line, that bell curve,
1: mm-hmm. then
0: those those outliers would be the people who are super high achievers and people who are at the very low ends of achievement.
1: Yeah. So like from a, from a corporate standpoint, uh, most of your company is going to be in the middle. That's uh-huh. where most of your money and resources are going just because that's where the most people are. But that small percentage at the top, those are the ones that are, that, that there's, there's really a lot of potential for. Those are the ones that are really bringing innovative ideas and high performance to the table. Mm-hmm. And then that, the, the bottom, the outlier, outliers at the very bottom, uh, those are the ones that you're going to want to cut, uh, and, and regularly cut those. That's the slack. You want to get rid of to tighten up the rope.
0: Yeah, indeed, and we use this again. This is a just a probability distribution in these real world scenarios to decide how well children are learning, which dictates how and what they learn. We use it to assess workplace performance and dole out raises, and that's where it becomes sort of like, hmm, let's let's look at this model a little bit closer because we have now reverse engineered a budget based on the bell curve, right, and. It could be that the bell curve is quite off. In fact, research conducted in 2011 and 2012 by Ernest O'Boyle Jr. and Herman Aguinness examined the performance of more than 630,000 people involved in four areas of human performance, academics writing, uh, so writing papers, athletes at the professional and collegiate levels, politicians, and entertainers. And they found that performance... And 94% of these groups did not follow a normal distribution, did not follow the bell curve. Uh, rather, those groups fell into what is called a power law distribution. And according to a Forbes magazine article, The Myth of the Bell Curve, this power law distribution is also known as a long tail, because it, we're looking at a picture of it right now. If you think about um, a rectangle And one side of that rectangle being a sort of tail, that's more of the distribution, they say, that is in keeping with what is really going on, that's reflecting reality. And they say that most people fall below the mean, and roughly 10 to 15 percent of the population are above the average, and often far above the average. And a large population are slightly below average in a small group, are far below average. So they say that this idea of average is actually pretty meaningless when you think about what's happening in real time.
1: Yeah, and I mean it's even it's even worse than meaningless when you start uh, looking at the idea that that rather than describing how we perform and and really being a telling model. Of, uh, of human behavior and human potential, the bell curve might actually be constraining our performance. That we're creating, that we're taking the statistical model of human behavior and trying to shoehorn our actual behavior into it.
0: Yeah, I mean, because think about a company or a classroom, and let's say that the the company classrooms um, they're full of hyper performers. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's say nineteen out of the twenty kids, th- like they're performing at crazy rates. Okay, right. They are still going to be graded on the bell curve. Uh, let's say that 19 of the 20 employees at a workplace are hyper performers. They're still going to, their raises, their performance are still going to be doled out based on the bell curve because again, that budget has been reverse engineered. So there's only a certain amount of money and percentages that are going to be distributed across that performance. So a lot of people lose out in those scenarios. Yeah, I mean
1: basically it's saying here is a model for what performance should look like. If you don't recognize that model in the group that you're judging, then you must be making a mistake. So even in that group of high performers uh, uh, at a company, you end up having to rate high, some high performers as average, and then some average uh, performers as uh, as low performers, and you're and that's just going to end up hurting morale yeah. and and driving away talented individuals.
0: Yeah, which is not to say that the idea of universal design, which is basically what we're talking about here when we talk about a bell curve model, isn't helpful because it is, right? When you talk about universal design in the ways that our streets are laid out, right? Yeah. Or even um, like kitchen utensils that are made for any size hand, not just a giant hand or a small hand. Um, but it's not so great when you actually talk about the individual him or herself and you have companies, institutions, education um, trying to mandate a sort of universal paradigm to place over it.
1: And so this brings us to a new idea to a new movement, a kind of a revolutionary approach and that is to to ban the average to to throw the idea of the average out to say, hey this institutional model, should not is false and should not dictate how we organize our lives and our industries and our educational system.
0: Yeah, and the biggest proponent of this idea of this ban the average is Todd Rose, who's a faculty member at Harvard Graduate School of Education. He talked about how in 1952 the U.S. Air Force had a problem. They had really good pilots flying better planes, all this money that they had sunk into better planes, but they were getting uh, worse results, and they didn't know why. And finally, they figured out that it had to deal with the design of the cockpit, which was designed based on the average man. And they had an Air Force researcher by the name of Gilbert Daniels who conducted a study and found that none, absolutely zero, of the 4,000 pilots were average on all of the 10 dimensions of size that he measured on them. We're talking about height, shoulders, chest, waist, hips, legs, uh, their reach, right, mm. uh, torso, neck, and thighs. And he proved that there was no such thing as an average pilot, but that they have a jagged size profile. So no one is the same on every single dimension. And just because, let's say, you might be the average height, it doesn't mean that you're the average weight or you have the average torso length. And so the Air Force took that information mm-hmm. and they decided to ban the average And they refused to buy fighter jets where the cockpit was made for the average pilot. And instead, they wanted them to design to what they called the edges of dimensions of size.
1: So saying basically, hey, we're going to have tall pilots. We're going to have short pilots. We need you to design with these extremes in mind. Instead of just saying, hey, this is the average person. One size fits all. Which is not the kind of mandate that... uh, that that anyone wants to hear in the manufacturing industry, it, because yeah. one size fits all is a good system if right. you are making uh, a screwdriver, if you're making uh, you know uh, to your point, uh, you know just some sort of IKEA part or or, or standard furniture uh, uh, product to go in your house.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, that's the the whole manufacturing business is based on that, but. Here you have like this really expensive equipment you want it to be interacted with in the correct way, and that all has to do with dimensions.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you have high performers who need to use a high-performance aircraft and you need to you need these two need to meet. It reminds me a lot of our um, relationship with computers mm-hmm. uh, and not just computers like even just like desk equipment in general, but everything everything that surrounds computing, the idea that that the computing experience should be made as human as possible so that humans can use the machine, can use the software, can use the chair and the table, everything involved in the office environment that, that they should be able to use it without lowering themselves to the level of the machine. The, the machine should meet the, the human user, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so here we see the same idea with, uh, with, with, uh, with institutions, with, uh, yeah. with, with design in general.
0: Yeah, and that's what Todd Rose says. He says that just like size, each student, every single one of them has a jagged learning profile, meaning they have strengths. They're average at some things and they have weaknesses. He says, we all do. Even geniuses have weaknesses. And he says, if you design those learning environments on average, odds are you've designed them for nobody. He says, so no wonder we have a problem. We've created learning environments that because they are designed on average cannot possibly do what we expected them to do, which is nurture individual potential. And he talks about how we are in a very unique situation right now technologically because we can serve the individual. We can serve the individual student in the way that they learn and follow those jagged profiles by giving them an iPad and giving them different programs to bolster learning in the areas that they're weak. Or if they're re- the really, really high performers, then challenging them with supplementation also provided by technology. And he's spot on about this, I think, because uh, what he's saying is that schools they, they spent an enormous amount of money on iPads. I think he said that they're like the, the second largest customer of um, or consumer of iPads, in at least in the United States. So if you have the technology at your disposal, if you are spending the money, why not begin to work with the possibilities of what those programs can offer on an individual level? Because we had talked about in our um, podcast about Finland and why they're churning out such incredibly well-rounded, smart kids Mm -hmm. who only have one test, one mandatory test at the age of 16, it's because they're serving those kids at the individual level. And they're spending 40% less than the United States is on education per child to do that.
1: You know, I I can't help but think back to um, uh, The Wire, uh, when we're talking about this, uh, mainly because uh, creator David Simon has often uh, stated that 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 in that show, you essentially have a Greek tragedy. But instead of gods, you have institutions because institutions are the gods of modern society. Mm-hmm. And so in, uh, in in this topic, we, we kind of have to ask the question, what kind of God suits uh, the denizen of the modern world better? One is the personal God that uh, is uh, is involved in your life. And uh, and and wants to mold you, and the other is this abstract, distant God. Uh, and if, to reach that God, you have to change yourself. You have to jump through the hoops of uh, of religious ritual to possibly uh, interact with it.
0: Oh my gosh! And uh, as we always say, it goes back to the Platonic ideal yeah. and Plato and this idea that we're all just you know these cheap copies of perfection. But you know we've decided that we're cheap copies on the on the bell curve instead of yeah. <laughs> you know, on on the jagged edge um of dimensions. And this even relates to health care if you think about it, and health insurance, uh, which sanctions treatments. And uh the myth of average can really put people at a disadvantage here. Uh Rose says that if you look at the area of cancer, you see an exponential increase in effective research and treatment when the individual with all of his or her genetic predispositions, diet and environment is considered as opposed to just, hey, here's this here's how we approach cancer. Mm -hmm. This in this very universal way. And he said that's it's really only when you get down to that individual level that you're making progress. And if you think about it, um, even in drug therapies, and this is from the case for personalized medicine, the third edition, it says many patients do not benefit from the first drug they are offered in treatment. For example, 38% of depression patients, 50% of arthritis patients, 40% of asthma patients, and 43% of diabetic patients will not respond to initial treatment. And we know initial treatment is something that is offered because based on the average that they have (laughs) that is the thing that they think will work the best
1: right and it sounds good on paper right treat the average patient and then adjust accordingly based on the feedback
0: yeah except as as it seems as mounting evidence would seem to to show us this average is indeed a myth
1: all right we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to uh, talk a little more about this topic and even read a few listener mails Hey, we're back and we're of course talking about the myth of average. We're talking about what happens when you have these have an institutional model of uh, of human performance and then you start trying to live your life and and have the whole culture work around those models. And the, and the the growing uh revelation that this average person that everything is centered around doesn't really exist.
0: Yeah, and the thing too is that this system is just completely permeated culture, right? Yes, it's uh, it's systemic. It's there. It's there to stay. It would seem. So Todd Rose, one of one of the things that he really wants to do is to try to take this apart a bit and look more toward the individual talent method. And he has something called the Variability Project. And his idea is that you have this, uh, you know, this system in place for 150 years based on averages, trying to understand individuals. And you have to now take this information about the myth of average and try to rework it. And so he says there are three broad challenges, data, models, and the nature of science to address the science of the individual reaching its full potential in all different fields. So what he's doing may seem a little bit pie in the sky right now because it's, it's a, uh, I say that only because again, it's very systemic. This, this, um, this, average idea and bell curve that's in place so that's there's so many different fields that he has to try to get into and influence that being said he and his organization are starting to provide papers on the topic and really trying to educate people on why uh why this is sort of erroneous thinking and how you can get to students to workers um to healthcare treatments in a much more effective way
1: you know, and just, just to go back to uh, Gwyneth uh, for a second, one of the authors on that 2011-2012 study, um, he described uh, the bell curve as, as possibly uh, being accurate in describing human performance in the presence of an external constraint, uh, such as an assembly line. Okay, mm-hmm. You have an assembly line, there are parts moving by, and you have skilled workers doing their bit to uh, to contribute to the uh, finished uh, air conditioning unit at the end of the line right mm-hmm. uh, but you're going to have talented individuals on there who are not who, who could work faster uh, if not held back by the pace of the line by the the, the outside constraint uh, that is applied to them by the institution.
0: Yeah, and it's really, the institution is key here. And it's interesting to think about this because you're thinking, oh, okay, this is, this is about manufacturing, right? Mm-hmm. Could this possibly apply to sort of like the creme de la creme of higher education? Could Ivy Leagues be a kind of assembly line?
1: Well, there's an excellent article on this uh, by David Brooks that published uh, uh, online in The Atlantic. Of course, it's The Atlantic, so it's it's really long, but very thorough breakdown. Of uh, of the state of higher education, especially as, as as it relates to Ivy Leagues. For instance, he argues that uh, that that right now we kind of have the convergence of of two models. There's the older model where to get into an Ivy League school you had to be somebody a very uh, you know class based model. Mm-hmm. You had to have the clout to get in, and then you have the newer model of to to get into a, a, a an Ivy League school to get into to be be a high achiever in society you had to be an overachiever. You had to just work and work and work. You had to you be know? the
0: right person. Yeah,
1: you had to be the right Right person, as opposed to the uh, being from the right class. So they end up in this environment where they're just uh, they're just performing at a high level all the time. They're expected and expecting themselves to just knock it out of the park, assignment after assignment. Uh, project after project, mm-hmm. uh, just domino after domino, right? And uh, as uh, as as Brooks says in the piece, he says, quote, learning is supposed to be about falling down and getting up again until you do it right. But in an academic culture that demands constant achievement, failures seem so perilous that the best and brightest often spend their young years in terrariums of excellence. Uh, and this is what uh, author uh, William Dershowitz, who's a former uh, professor of English at Yale, uh, terms, a violent aversion to risk. So you you can imagine where you where an institution like this would produce an individual that could go on to achieve great things within a similar institution. You know, the right kind of uh, uh, financial firm, etc. Where there again are uh, are these dominoes to knock down one after the other, but that kind of uh, individual, that kind of thinking that's been, in a sense, institutionalized by uh, the, the Ivy League system mm-hmm. is not going to perform well in other areas of society.
0: Yeah, uh, Dershowitz, uh, he, he has a book called Excellent Sheep, and he says that uh, the Ivy League is churning out students who are super people, alien species, I don't <laughs> think that one's fair, uh, and bionic hamsters. I, I mean, this this is rough stuff here. Um, but again I
1: I think bionic hamster matches up with some people I've met that would fit that mold
0: bionic hamster
1: it's kind of awesome in a way yeah Yeah, yeah. I'm going to
0: put that on my resume I'm not as um, long as they have a
1: wheel they're good to go
0: there you go And he says, as you said, the system manufactures students who are smart and talented and driven, but they're also anxious, timid and lost with little intellectual curiosity and stunted sense of purpose, trapped in a bubble of privilege, heading meekly in the same direction. Great at what they're doing, but no idea why they're doing it. And so I think it kind of goes back down to that whole individual versus universal level, because at the individual level, as Brooks has said, there is failure. You must fail. You must fail and get up and do it again in order to learn and find purpose. But at the universal level and at the university level, <laughs> there is only success. That is what the, the, the big push is, right? Just to succeed and not to individualize the content that you are, are taking in, so you could even say that it's just all about regurgitation as opposed to percolating on something, permeating your worldview, and figuring it out for yourself. What does it matter to you as a person?
1: So again, I, I can't help but come back to that uh, to David Simon's uh, bit about institutions as gods and this uh, this idea that. We we don't want that distant God that requires us to jump through hoops and jump through ritual. We we want this institutional God that uh that sees us as an individual.
0: Yeah, and I find actually a lot of comfort in this idea of the myth of the average because you know, too often I think we we hear this statistic of you fall into this category and that category and we're so completely categorized and labeled that we don't necessarily follow the individual path for ourselves, and I think this is a very subconscious thing. In fact, mm-hmm. I think all of us, if you if you thought to yourself for a moment, do I subconsciously seed myself to a kind of average out there, or an idea of what is average? Um, I think all of us would probably say, yeah. There's a certain sort of standard that I hold myself to, and the you know, I guess the idea is that that standard is built of myths, right? right. So it's very interesting to look at it that way. And I even think about some of the science reporting that we do sometimes because, you know, we're creating these narratives and these stories about what's happening and how we move through the world and why we do what we do. But you can't even just take one study or, you know, one certain aspect of it and say that this is a universal truth. It's just sort of coloring the perception of, of a greater narrative of what's going on. And I think sometimes it, it just, it's so easy for us to want to take that easy, simple structure, that bell curve, and apply it to our life and get that answer now.
1: Indeed, indeed. Uh, there's a certain comfort in that, to be Yeah. Sure.
0: I mean, I, who have you ever met someone who said, I, I'd like to be a statistic. I would like to be representative of a statistic.
1: I feel like I have heard people make that, uh, that plea uh, when it's beneficial to be a statistic.
0: That is true. Yeah. That is true. But you know, most of us don't want to be treated like a statistic, no. right?
1: Yeah. Like I say, I think most people want that—that that they don't want the impersonal institutional god. They want the personal one, and that ultimately is the the model that makes the most sense in terms of meeting the individual, in terms of getting the most out of the individual. Uh, you know, as far as performance goes, mm-hmm. and just. How we work as human beings,
0: indeed, and especially when you look at it, these in larger constructs like education or healthcare or corporations, it really does begin to matter to again the individual.
1: Exactly. All right. Well, on that note, uh, I'm going to call over the robot here, and we're going to do going to do uh, a couple of uh, quick listener mails. <laughs> All right, this one comes to us from Peter Kron, who is a long-time listener to the show uh, and uh, runs the record label uh, King Deluxe. Uh, so he has some stuff here to add in about happiness. Uh, and I, I mentioned the record label stuff because it kind of plays into what he's talking about here. He says, I just listened to the Happiness Podcast, uh, the Mathematics of Happiness, uh, and couldn't stop thinking about this dichotomy between short-term and long-term happy. Uh, so now I thought I'd comment a bit. Uh, what you were saying about lowering expectations and yet shooting for the moon... Both make sense, but they're at odds with each other. I think you guys nailed it on the head with being realistic about things. Although maybe there's two layers. One super, super ambitious layer of expectations and another base level. I think, though, they tie together. What long-term satisfaction... Uh, is often based upon with, for example, big art projects, is peer review. You can try to create something truly grand, and in the back or front of your mind, expect people to wow over it the second it's released to the public. But then in execution, it gets watered down over and over until it barely resembles what one set out to make or it just evolved. You no longer expect the same reaction. In fact, sometimes artists end up hating it at the point of release, in part because of overexposure, but also because they felt like they swung and missed. But then the reaction far surpasses the new expectations, and the artist starts feeling great about their work and build warm memories about the overall experience. In other words, it's complicated.
0: <laughs> well and it just reminded me of of when we've talked about memory and the role of memory and taking that memory out and reframing that memory and so when you talk about the long term you are talking about long-term memory in that sort of 2020 hindsight so happiness becomes even more complicated in that sense
1: indeed yeah i mean as we as we we really you know try to drive home in that that episode and in other episodes where we've talked about happiness and and finding you know some level of uh, equanimity in your life it's it's difficult because it's our life is not one constant state it's one state after the other it's this uh, up and down
0: that's our t-shirt yeah happiness period it's difficult <laughs>
1: Alright, this one comes to us from Brian. Brian writes in and says, Hey, I just listened to your podcast over breakfast, as is my custom, uh, when I was thinking about adult lullabies and how we seem to prefer ones that feature morbidity. I was instantly reminded of the podcast Welcome to Nightvale, in which the silky voice Cecil soothingly explains the bizarre and often horrifying news that occurs in the fictional town of Nightvale. While I myself don't listen to it while falling asleep for fear of missing anything in the story, I know that a great many of my friends do. They claim it helps them greatly. Anyway, if you're not familiar with Welcome to Night Vale, I highly suggest you check it out. I suspect Robert, in particular, would be fond of it. Keep up the great work.
0: Uh, I love that because that analogy is perfect to lullabies because in Night Vale, they really, I mean, he, Cecil is talking about these horrific events, yeah. which, again, are told in this just lullaby, hushing voice, and it really sort of ramps up the creepiness, but also, there you go. I mean, that's the same thing that lullabies are doing when we sing this into little infant's ears, right? Mm-hmm about you know their their cradle rocking over and them spilling out.
1: Yeah I, I have uh, I have checked out Night Vale before it is it isn't a very interesting and unique uh podcast. Um I, I haven't had the chance to really dive into it, but I had a solo drive uh several months back and I loaded up on podcasts and I ended up spinning a long period driving through the dark through the the cold rain and listening to like the first four episodes and i was i was i was really impressed
0: it's one of those works that i feel like oh man i wish i had come up with that i wish i could it's such a it's such a great concept and great execution
1: yeah so indeed uh you know listen to us in the morning over breakfast uh as brian (laughs) does and then at the night at night maybe consider uh listening to night vale all right, so there you have it. Um, hey, you want to check out more episodes? You want to check out the that uh, the cervical wings thing we just mentioned here? Uh you head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. Uh click on that podcast tab and you'll find all the podcast episodes we've ever done. Going back to the very beginning, all streaming there. Uh, many of the more recent ones also include uh, art and links out to uh related content on our site and elsewhere. Uh you can also find um, links out to our social media accounts there as well as videos as well as blog posts. And hey, be sure to check us out on YouTube where we are Mind Stuff Show.
0: And on the topic of myth of averages, do you feel like any of that rings true to you in terms of the the classroom or at work or any other institution that you've been involved with? Um, Is that kind of one of those things that once you become aware of, you begin to see your experience filtered through this kind of mythical average? Let us know your thoughts on that. And you can do that by sending us an email at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.